If you want to turn in your Bibles to uh, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3. Uh, typically what we do uh, here at Park Baptist Church is take a text of Scripture and walk it through uh, to let the Word of God speak to our hearts um, and have that be the thrust of the sermon. Today we are continuing our series uh, on the church, um, talking about church government and church polity. Uh, so today is going to be a little bit more of a topical message grounded in the Scriptures. Uh, so I just want to make sure you are aware of that. Uh, Well, there's a lot to cover, so let me start uh, by opening us up in a word of prayer. Uh, Father, we praise your name. We praise your holy name. God, we have already sung of your great grace, a grace that is far greater than our sin. And God, we need to be reminded that again this morning. Uh, All of us come with things that we have done this past week that may not have brought you honor, uh, whether that has been a greedy heart, a prideful heart, a heart that has spoken lies, a lustful heart, God, a heart that has desired to serve itself rather than give to others. God, we pray now that we would experience the grace that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ, through His shed blood, through the Lamb that was slain to took away the sins of the world. So God, we we know that you who are faithful and just will cleanse us of all our sins and purify us from our unrighteousness when we confess our sins to you. So we do so now, God, asking for forgiveness. Father, we pray uh, for the family of uh, Miss Dean Smith as they grieve her passing this past week. God, we pray that you be with the children for Cindy and uh, Garrett and and Scott. God, we pray that you would just comfort them with your love. Remind them of your um, abundant grace. Your amazing grace. Father, we do pray for the proclamation of our gospel in this city. Uh, God, we do want a revival in this city. But God, we know that a revival starts in our own hearts. God, we, 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 we need to respond uh, to the great and glorious gospel of Christ. So God, we pray that you would bring revival through the preaching of your word in our city. So God, we pray for our brother Steve Hogg at First Baptist Church. God, we pray as he gets up and preaches, God, that the Holy Spirit would attend the Word of God, that that church would be built up and shaped around your Word. God, help that church make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching that congregation to observe all that you have commanded in your Holy Word. Father, we come now and ask for your blessing on our own hearts. God, we pray for the next 30 minutes that you would open our hearts to receive your Word. God, I pray that I may decrease, that you may increase. God, that I would hide myself upon the cross, behind the cross. I would, I would submit myself to the word of God. God, I pray that all that I say would be grounded in your word, that nothing comes from me that, is, that would bring you dishonor, that would bring a people uh, to, to lead them in a false direction. Uh, God, I pray for the hearts of the people that I love. God, who you have given me to shepherd. God, I pray for them. I pray that you would speak to them through your word. Build them up that we may present them mature in Christ. Father, we ask you to speak through your Holy Spirit in power. We ask this through Christ's name. Amen. Who is in charge here? (laughs) Amen wasn't expecting a response, but amen. You know, that's a question that people uh, do not like to hear, but they love to ask. 
Uh, It usually means when someone asks that question, who is in charge here, that someone is unhappy and they're about to complain uh, to someone who they feel is responsible for their unhappiness. Supervisors and managers uh, don't like to hear this question because it usually means they're about to have a very difficult conversation. But the people who've been mistreated, who have uh, experienced something that has been wrong, that they're unhappy with, this is a very valid question. Who is in charge? If a toy sold at Walmart is unsafe for children and a child is hurt, a parent wants to know who is in charge. Who's responsible for this? If a company makes a decision to stop paying overtime and expecting you to still work overtime hours, you you want to know who is in charge here. It's important to know who's in charge so that we can know who we go to with problems and who to praise when things go well. It's important for, to know who makes the decisions of any company or organization. So we asked this morning, who's in charge of the church? The pastor? Deacons? Trustees? The ones here with the longest membership? The finance committee? The congregation? Those who give the most money? Maybe the local association or the heads of the denomination? God? Who is in charge of the church? Another way to ask the question is, how should the church be set up? How should the church be governed? What is the polity or the government of the local church? So anytime you have a discussion like this, you have to ground it in the Bible. Uh, we believe that the Bible is God's Word, inerrant, infallible, without any mixture of air. So we can learn from our experiences. We can learn how churches have set up different systems or practices and different traditions. We can learn from them, but we must submit those experiences to the Word of God. We always want to be firm when the Bible is firm and charitable when the Bible gives room for discussion. There are many disagreements in this topic of church government from godly, scholarly, conservative Christians who believe the Bible is God's Word disagree on how a church should be structured. So it should be a conversation had that should be charitable. But it also should be had that is seeped in the Scriptures, not our own opinions. God cares about the organization and behavior of His church. We, we see that even in our text this morning. God writes through Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Read with me. I hope, Paul's writing, to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. See, Paul wrote to Timothy so that we would know how we ought to behave in the household of God. There is a specific way that our church should function. God cares. God cares about our government, how we should be organized. Why? Because this household of faith here is the church of the living God. We represent Him. We are a reflection 
of the one true and living God. So God says, I want you to know how you ought to behave, how you ought to be organized. Through the whole uh, chapter of 1 Timothy, the first half is about elders and overseers. The next section is about deacons. And then he, we see those verses in context. It says, you ought to know how you should behave. It says the church is a pillar and buttress of truth. This means the church holds up or supports truth. The church has been entrusted with the mystery of godliness. Paul goes on in 1 Timothy 3, 16. He explains what this mystery of godliness is. He says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And then he has this beautiful hymn, probably a hymn that was sung in the early church. He says, Jesus, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The church has been entrusted with the mystery of salvation. You hear it? Jesus Christ, he was one manifested in the flesh, stepped out of the throne of heaven, became a a man, God incarnate. He lived that perfect human life without any sin, free from the corruption of this world. He was innocent, and yet what happened? He was made to be punished as one who was guilty for the sake of sinners. But we know that after his death, what happened? He was vindicated by the Spirit. God said the the, the grave could not hold him. He was resurrected. So this is what we proclaim to the world. Every week when we gather as a church, we proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, to him we proclaim. We proclaim Jesus. This is the mystery that God has entrusted to us. This is a beautiful, incredible responsibility that God has given his church. So he says, because you have that power, that you hold the message which can bring people from death to life, from those who are shrouded in darkness to bring them to light, those who are in the kingdom of the evil one to the kingdom of the Son, the beloved Son of God. Because you have that, you ought to know how to behave in the household of faith. So most people think, man, church government, boy, this is going to be a great sermon, pastor. Check it out for the next 20 minutes. But God says in his word, you should know, beloved, you should know how the church should be organized. Because we proclaim this great news. We proclaim this great news to the world here so that if people, like it says in Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Beloved, God cares how we operate as a church. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, as many of you have already said, uh, who's in charge of the church is very clearly Jesus Christ. He established the church, Matthew 16, 18. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church church. The church is of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
So as Jesus has established the church, it also says that he's the head of the church. Now I'm going to say a lot of scripture throughout this sermon. You may not be able to get it all, but just make a note in your, in your notes in your Bible and look it up later. Ephesians 5, 23 says Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Colossians 1, 18, he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. All authority given in the church stems from Jesus Christ. The church must hold fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with its growth that is from God. Jesus is ultimately the one who's in charge of the church. So we can can put a period right there. But he has given... His authority to others, to govern, to lead, to serve His bride. Now, many of you here were our lifelong Southern Baptist. You were born a Baptist and you'll die a Baptist. Uh, I was not that way. I was raised in a different uh, denomination, uh, but I became a Baptist. I was about 24, 25 years old. I started really studying the Scripture. What does God say about the church? And I just came to believe very clearly that the Baptists have it right. The historic view of the Baptist faith, how a church should be organized, is the one that's in the Bible. So what does the Bible say? Who is in charge of the church? Let us look at the Scripture and see how the Bible answers this question. If you want to flip on the back of your bulletin, we're going to walk through this in three ways. Uh, The first truth is the church is governed by the congregation. The church is governed by the congregation. The final authority, the final earthly authority in the church is the church itself. As we have established earlier, it is important to know who's in charge, so who ultimately will be held responsible if things go wrong. Now, typically, when things go wrong in a church, who do they tend to look at? Point to me, right? They point, point to the pastor. Right? Things go wrong, it's your fault, pastor. But what does Jesus say? When things go wrong in the church, listen to what it says in Matthew 18, 15 and following. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you you agree on earth about anything, they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now typically, when we say that, two or three are gathered, what do we say? Two or three are gathered. We can have a church service right here. But in the context, when two or three are gathered, what is God saying? That is an act of judgment. You are judging another believer in their sin. Get the context. So Jesus shows the progression. If, if someone sins against you, you go to your brother. If he listens, you win him. If he don't listen, doesn't listen, you get two or three. You go to him and say, tell him his sin. If he doesn't listen to them, then it says what? Tell it to the church, and treat them as a non-believer if they don't listen. 
The final authority that Jesus gives is to the congregation. Not a board of elders, not a board of deacons, but to the church. Listen, in Acts chapter 6, a, a complaint arose among certain widows who were being overlooked with the distribution of food. Acts 6, 2 and 3. And the twelve apostles summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, referring to the full number of the disciples, pick out from among you seven men. And verse 5. And what they said pleased the whole gathering they chose. See, the final authority in choosing their leaders was not given to individuals, but it was given to the church. Paul assumes the congregation is in charge to hold those should be, should be held accountable uh, for allowing sin in the church. Paul says that if there's sin in the church, it ultimately is the people's fault. The church's responsibility to deal with that sin. Listen to 1 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2. It is actually reported that there is sexually, sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let me who has done let me who has let him who has done this be removed from you. Who is the you? Who is the letter written to? It is the church of God at Corinth. Paul ultimately does not blame the pastor. He does not blame the leadership. He blames the church for tolerating sin in the community of faith. We see the same thing again in 2 Corinthians 2, 6-8. For such a one, the punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm, reaffirm your love for him. So a brother was in sin. They, they put him out of the church. The majority of the church punished him. They said the majority should also welcome him back. He did not address the pastors or the leaders. Who did he address? The church. Are you seeing a pattern here? Again, one pastor notes, in Galatians, Paul called on the congregations to judge the teaching that they had been hearing. In 2 Timothy 4, Paul reproved not just the false teachers, but also those who paid them to teach what their itching ears wanted to hear. So, beloved, just understand this. When there is sin, when there's issues of wrongdoing in our community of faith, what God would say, ultimately, it is the church's responsibility to deal with. Don't you find, when it comes to issues of authority, that people want the authority to make decisions, but they don't want the blame that comes with it? We want to say, do this, do that, listen to me, do, do this in, in the life of the church. But when, then when God comes around and says, something's going wrong, fix it. I, I'm just a member. That's a, that's a pastor's job. That's a deacon's job. Is it? Not according to the Lord. Why? Because the final authority in the church is the church. We are a congregational form of church government. That means, if you call a members meeting tonight, the body of Park Baptist Church could... Get me out of leadership. Also, the body of Park Baptist Church could change Park Baptist Church uh, to Park 
Episcopal church. Because the authority is not invested in individual leaders, it is invested in who? Us corporately. Do you see why God really cares? This is, you, know, you, know, you know me in my heartbeat, I'm going to tell you all the time how valuable membership is in a local church. It's important because God says it's important. Why would God give the final authority, His authority, to the church if He did not think it was valuable? And so many people don't commit. Why? There's a lot of reasons, but God wants you to. Why? Because He gives you that authority to invest on His behalf. Well, the second thing we see here is, you know, although God ultimately holds the church responsible, He does call some men to lead the church. Not to rule, but rather to lead. So the second thing we see here, the church is led by the elders. The church is led by the elders. Last week, I mentioned that one of the things about a healthy church member, uh, should they, should, they should submit faithfully to the church's leadership. That sounds self-aggrandizing as, as the lead, one of the leaders of the church saying, you must now submit to me. Well, that is in God's word and we can't dismiss it. But I think that if you give me a, minute, a moment to explain more in depth how God has set up his system of government for particular men to lead the church and not a man. Did you hear that? Men to lead the church and not a man. There are two offices in the church laid out in Scripture, pastors and deacons. God gives very specific qualifications of both these offices. The Bible uses many words to describe the pastoral office. Pastor, elder, overseer, bishop, they're all used interchangeably in the New Testament. They all mean one office of pastor. So when I say elder, many of you guys think, whoa, he's getting all Presbyterian on me. I'm not. I'm just getting Bible on you. Okay? Baptists should know the word elder is in the Bible. We shouldn't be afraid of it. Right? Uh, Pastor, elder, bishop, overseer. I'm going to be using them interchangeably because they are used interchangeably in the New Testament. We could see that clearly in the second half of Acts chapter 20. There are three things I want you to notice first about the office of elder. First, uh, the elder pastor must be a man of godly character. Paul Paul lays out the qualifications of what those men who are called to lead the church. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Paul writes, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, pastor, elder, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. The qualifications are clearly laid out. I could give you a four-part series on just those qualifications. We don't have time this morning. But one of the things you see here is that they have, they have character. And they don't have character that they have the potential to be. Paul doesn't say they have the potential to be godly men. What does Paul say? They must be. They must be. But too often, here's what I see happening when it comes to leadership. Not just elder, but I think, I think also deacons. They say, man, he's a good man, right? 
He's got a lot of potential. He could be a great minister of the church. I think we should vote him as deacon, and maybe that will encourage him to, to step up his game. That is not the way the Bible tells you to pick a leader. He says, look for men who are already these, who already meet these qualifications. Do you see that? They must be this way. Elders are not perfect, but they should be examples of godly character. God is asking the church to submit to who? Men of godly character who put others before themselves. The second thing you see here is God is asking men to lead who have the ability to teach God's word. So not only should they have godly character, they should also have godly wisdom. Paul says in 1 Timothy that the elders must be able to teach. They must know the word of God. He says something similar to the the elders in in Titus chapter 1 verse 9. He says this, that he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, but also to rebuke those who contradict it. See, elders, their job is to guard the doctrinal purity of the church. We have to know what is in the Word of God and what is not. So when someone rises up and challenges the church, this is how we challenge them back. See all that stuff? That was an illustration. That's not supposed to be what we challenge people with. It's only the Word of God. That's what I call a recovery. Thank you for laughter. (laughs) So godly character, godly wisdom. Beloved, this is nothing new right? People know the Word of God and people have godly character. You would say, well, pastor, we already know that. Thank you for reminding me. Well, I I did and you're welcome. But the the third thing that I want you to see here is that uh, elders in the New Testament have godly character, godly wisdom, but notice their number. The Bible teaches that the church should have a plurality of elders, multiple pastors leading the church, multiple men, not one man should lead the church in character and wisdom. Now I'm going to give you a lot of scriptures, and I want you to hear these. Write these verses down. Acts 14, 23. And when they had appointed elders, plural, for them in every church, singular, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord whom they had believed. Acts 20, 17. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders, plural, of the church, singular, to come to him. Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, singular church, with the overseers, plural, and the deacons. One church, multiple pastors. Titus 1.5, that is why I left you in Crete, so that you, could, you might put what remained into order and appoint elders, plural, into every town, singular, as I directed you. James 5.14, speaking to the church. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders, plural, of the church, singular. The plurality of elders or pastors is clearly taught in the New Testament. I mean, we even see that in in Exodus 18, our scripture reading, how Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, said, you're going to kill yourself. (laughs) Go get multiple men, able-bodied men who can discern on smaller matters. Now, this doesn't mean that there shouldn't be one who teaches the Word primarily. I mean, Paul told Timothy, as a young pastor, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Same thing in 1 Timothy 5.17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. 
among a group of leaders, there would be one, possibly more, that were devoted to the study and preaching of God's Word. Their responsibility to teach does not mean that they are the only elders. Now, I know as your pastor, the one who who primarily is is responsible for teaching the Word of God, that I'm going to have the greatest influence in our church because I am teaching the Word of God to you week in and week out. So I don't want you to be shaped and formed to to myself. This is why I do what? This is why I preach the Bible. Because no church should be formed around the personality of one man, their pastor. They should be formed around the Word of God. So is it healthy to have multiple pastors? Let me provide several reasons why I think it's beneficial for the church to have a plurality of, st- of both staff and lay pastors. First, number one, it improves congregational care. You know, multiple qualified men with godly character and godly wisdom will do a better job caring for the spiritual needs of a group of people than one man. There are just limits of the spiritual care that one pastor can give the people. First Peter 5, 2 says to the elders, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. It's both wise and and biblical to have multiple men give themselves to the shepherding task. You know, how many people do you know have left a church because they did not feel they were properly cared for by the pastor? I've met several. And guys, that is a hard burden to weigh down. You know, so there's sometimes people will come up to me and say, well, I've been waiting for your visit. Okay, I'll be right there. Not that I don't want to be there. I just didn't know. You know, how many people are on our membership role? Anyone have an idea? Close to 400. One man to care for 400 souls. Two-thirds that don't show up on Sunday morning. It's just unrealistic. One of the dangers also of having a single pastor model is that men who are qualified to serve as pastors, do, but they don't feel called to the full-time preaching ministry, the vocational preaching ministry, feel that they're not, they're not a pastor. The preacher is only one of the shepherds. A plurality of elders gives a platform for godly men to use their shepherding gifts to care for the spiritual needs of the people. Wouldn't it be great to have multiple men who, who, whose, whose task has been ordained by God, voted on by you, to give themselves to the church? Let me ask you this question. We have two elders of Park Baptist Church, myself and Bill Reagan. When Bill came on board, has the church been better cared for or less cared for? Better, right? Uniformly better. Why? Because there's two people now giving themselves to shepherd and care for the people of God. If two, why not three? Why not four? Godly men who have godly character and godly wisdom to care for your souls as people who are going to stand before God one day and give an account to how they shepherded you. The second thing, it protects the church from the pastor. I said that. It protects the church from the pastor. You know, pastors are godly men, but they also are infa- they're also fallible men. Pastors need to be held accountable in their teaching and their character. 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul says, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. A plurality of pastors guards the church from the sin in a pastor's life. By doing what? Surrounding them 
with people to hold him accountable, to test his integrity, to make sure that he's preaching the word of God. It also helps to provide wisdom in decision-making. My former pastor, Mark Dever, says this, sharing leadership with a group of godly, able, non-staff elders will almost invariably keep pastors, especially young ones, from saying or doing dumb things or from saying or doing the right things in unhelpful ways. Having other people to give wisdom from, you could better care for the people. Let me just be honest. I'm 33 years old. I was not raised in Rock Hill. I have not lived among you for generations. But there are godly men in our congregation who have. So if I want to care for you well, what do I do? I pull those people alongside me. How can we better care for these people? Because God has not called me to shepherd everybody in Rock Hill. Who has God called me to shepherd? The people of Park Baptist Church. So are we going to knock out the pulpit and have a rock band next Sunday? Y'all would leave. (laughs) Because that's not the people here at this church. Also, pastors, unfortunately, can be domineering, totalitarian in their leadership. It often hurts the church. A plurality of elders protects the church from the misuse of authority. Why? Because it shares authority. So when I tell you as a pastor that I want you to submit to your church's leadership, I don't mean submit to me. Does that make sense? I want you to submit to godly men. Bill and myself, we regularly meet and we discuss the care and the needs of our congregation. The third thing, it protects the pastor from the church. It protects the pastor from the church. You know, leaders are are criticized. Pastors are no exceptions. The dropout rate for people who enter the ministry is very, very high. One of the reasons is that most pastors feel that they are called to share the emotional spiritual weight on their own shoulders to take all the criticism from the people. You know, having multiple elders, pastors, protect the us versus him mentality that can often develop when disagreements arise in a local church. The plurality of pastors shares the emotional load or the criticism within a church and the shepherding load of the people. The priority of elders, beloved, is both wise and biblical. We can't get around in the Scripture. They don't rule. Who rules? The church. So what happens if an elder is not living wise, not teaching well? You can remove him. So hear me, if I start teaching a false doctrine, please fire me. Okay, thank you. I want to get an amen in there. All right, last thing, and quickly. The church is served by the deacons. The church is served by the deacons. Uh, The second office of the Bible gives the church is the office of deacon. We see that in 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. It lists the qualifications. You know, we have a deacon's election coming up in a few months. Listen to this and think about godly men in in our own church. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. 
Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who, are, who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Deacons, like elders, should be men who possess godly character and a knowledge of the Scriptures. The only significant difference between the qualifications of an elder pastor and a deacon is the ability to teach. That's it. We see that both in, in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. So then what are deacons called to do? Well, the best place to discover the main purpose of deacons is to go to the, to the first deacons in Acts chapter 6. Uh, there was disunity in the church. As I said before, uh, there was certain widows being overlooked in the distribution of food. So Acts 6, 2 through 4, listen. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word to serve, to, to deacon, that's where the word comes from, to deacon tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom they will appoint to this duty. But we, as elder pastors, will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry or the, the deacon of the word. So seven men were set apart to to deacon the tables, to serve the tables, while pastors were to devote themselves to the, the deaconing or the, the service of the minister, ministry of the word. So they, they, they work together in tandem. Um, Mark Dever is also helpful here when he says this. Deacons then serve to care for the physical and financial needs of the church, and they do so in a way that heals divisions, brings unity under the word, and supports the leadership of the elders. Without the practical service of deacons, the elders would not be freed to devote themselves to praying and serving the word to the people. Elders need deacons to serve practically. Deacons need elders to lead spiritually. Beloved, God has provided a recipe for the structure of his church. He has given us his word that we should know. We should know how the household of God should behave. The church of the living God. Now, we could change the recipe. But if we do, the church would lose its heavenly flavor. We have to listen and obey God's word. God has given us his recipe for the church. Will we follow it? Let's pray. Father, we thank you how you have taught us in your word. You have taught us um, how we ought to behave. As we are stewards of the great mysteries of God, the gospel. God, we pray that we would live in light of your word, that we would not live based on traditions, but we would live based on the, the clear revelation of the word of God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.